Welcome to the Grace Point Church Podcast. Here at Grace Point Church, we believe in meeting people where they are and leading them to where God wants them to be. Join us now as we listen to this week's message. I have this, uh, well, I used to have this really, really great bright red windbreaker. Very similar in color to the guy, the one that the guy in the the video had. And it was perfect. It it had a hood for those days that it was rainy. It was exactly the right weight you wanted it to be so that you could put it on with just a shirt on underneath or you could put it over a sweatshirt and and it it was, it it still felt good. And I've had, I had this, uh, this red windbreaker for years. Many years. Uh, So many years, in fact, that uh, my family started to absolutely hate it. Everywhere I would go and wear it, they would like look at me with this look of confusion and disgust all, you know, all rolled into one. Like, what are you doing wearing that jacket? And it was so great. I loved it. And you know how sometimes when you have a jacket and you've had it for a long time, you know, the, the edges of the sleeves where the elastic is, it starts to give a little bit. And it starts to get a little bit, you know, dingy on the edges, but I still loved it. And when you opened it up and you looked inside, the lining in the inside was all ripped up. In fact, another rip came right about here. But since the lining inside and the shell on the outside was the same color, unless you really looked, you couldn't see it. And I still loved it. I loved that jacket. And it didn't occur to me, even though they kept saying, get rid of it, throw it away. Why are you still wearing that? Don't come near me. If you're going to wear that thing, I still could not let go of that jacket. And so over the months, and in fact, it was probably over the years, over the years, what they would do to try to get me to stop wearing that jacket is they would buy me windbreakers over and over again. And you can ask, ask them how many of them they've returned, because they've returned many, many of them, except for one. They got me a Giants windbreaker, which I really love. But I only wear it during baseball season, so when it's not baseball season, I wear my big red windbreaker. And I loved it. And uh, it's now gone, and I have no idea where it is. I'm I'm pretty sure that I agreed, uh, probably when I had eaten too much one night or or I was really sleepy, I agreed to get rid of it. Uh, But now I can't find it anywhere, because I would have loved to have worn it today to show you how great it was. But the interesting thing is, is that they were relentless. Well, especially Terry, she was relentless with buying me windbreakers. And every time she would buy me one, I would go, hey, this is great, and never wear it. And so it got returned. So here's Christmas. And uh, guess what I got? I got a very, very lovely, and from the brand, probably very, very expensive, windbreaker. And I'm so grateful for it. But I probably am not going to ever wear it ever again. And I'm probably going to return it. Because that is what we do with gifts, is that we return it. And this Christmas season, I didn't realize, because I know that, you know, I get gifts sometimes and return them. But we actually have a box, a plastic box, 
where we put gifts that we get, get that no one knows if they're ever going to wear them or use them or, or what to do with them, and we put them in that box. Hopefully, a couple of years later, people will forget about it, and then we're going to re-gift them to somebody or use them for some white elephant game. So if you ever play white elephant with anyone in my family, you know that that gift somebody gave us like four years ago. So we've been putting them in there because I thought that people just get gifts and they just put them aside. But it turns out people get gifts and they return them. Like this Christmas season, the reason that December 26 is the third biggest shopping day of the year is because most people go and they return gifts. Uh, there's a, a sales uh, data company and they found out uh, that or that they projected that based on the trends from the last few years that this year... of you will return some of your Christmas gifts. 22% of you will return over half of your Christmas gifts. Like people give you a gift and you take it back to the store and get money for it. I did not know that this was a thing. I would just... Rather, you just gave me the cash and the gas money that you went to to go and buy it than have me to go through all that extra trouble. But so many people are doing this. And 64% of the things that are going back are, guess what? What do you think they are? 64% of the things that people are returning. Clothes. 64% of the clothes that you give to other people are being returned. In fact, they expect that this year the total value of all of the gifts that are going to be returned at Christmas time, you ready for this? $264 billion is going to be returned from this holiday season. January 2, UPS has dubbed as National Returns Day because January 2 is the day that they have the most drivers and packages out on the road going to return stuff. We, for some reason, we get things and we are very grateful for the people who give them to us. And then we try to find out where we can go to return them and to get money for them or something else for them. Return or exchange. Basically, anything but the thing that we were actually given. Uh, there's a lady, and her name's Deborah Cohen, and she is the, a marketing professor at, at New York Institute of Technology. And she did some research on this whole idea of returning gifts. And she found something that many of us have long suspected. And that is that many people choose gifts to give to other people because they're trying to send a message. The gift that you give to someone is trying to send them a message. And when I read that, it just totally blew my mind because, yes, that's exactly right. That is what they were doing. The message was, red windbreaker ugly. Everything else, good. Red windbreaker ugly. And it was a message. And so we do this, don't we? When we go and shop, especially for clothes, for people, we're giving gifts to our children, to our spouses, to our our relatives, and we buy them clothes, we look at it and we go, you know what? They would really look good in this. Because we're saying to ourselves, all of the other stuff that they wear isn't very nice. This is the style of clothes that they should be wearing. We're trying to send a message. And even though we don't think about it, I think that there's something in us that understands that when we get a gift, when something comes into our life, that we say to ourselves, 
there must be a message in this. And, and, and I don't think we consciously say it. But you know where we do consciously say it, where we do think about it? Is when we look back on the things that come into our life and we put the blame or the credit on God for those things coming into our lives. And we think to ourselves, God must have had a message for this. God must have put this into my life to send me a message. And so as we look at 2019 and we're closing out 2019, this is our last time to gather together for this year. And it's natural for us to look at the year and and to come to the end of the year and to kind of reflect back on everything that's happened. I think it's easy for us to look back, for many of us, to look back on some of the things that happened in this last year and say to ourselves, boy, I wish that that could have happened differently. I wish that I didn't have to go through that. I wish that that would have turned out a different way. And when we look at it, it's easy for us to sit back and to look at these things that have come into our lives and just say, man, if those were only like the gifts that I got at Christmas, that I could carefully put them back into their packaging and take them down to the store and return them or exchange them for something else. Because if we could just do that, if we could just change some of the things that happened to us over this last year, that maybe where I am right now would be very, very different. But the reality is, and this is going to be no surprise, but the reality is is that we can. There's nothing really that we can do about everything that has happened in the past. There's nothing we can do to change all of the events that took place in 2019. But the thing about that is, and I think this is the thing that we lose sight of when we take that time and we reflect back on things that have happened and, and start to say to ourselves, boy, I wish that I had done this differently. I wish that this had turned out differently. I wish that these events had come out differently. Is that if we were to really look at them, I know for me, if I were to really look at them, one of the things that I would see is that no matter if I had taken those events and, had, and was able to change them, no matter if I was able to take those words and, and turn them around, or take that relationship and make it a little bit different, no matter what could have happened, there's always going to be one common denominator in every one of those situations that I wish that I could change. And that common denominator is me. It could change, but I would still be there. I would still react the same way that I do. I would still say the dumb things that I say. I would still make the mistakes that I've made because no matter what we do to the circumstances around us, the thing that never changes is me. I'm always going to be there. And so as we take this look back, as we, as we take this look back and, and look at uh, and assess this year that has gone by, I think one of the things that we are tempted to do is to wish that things were different rather than to look at them from the perspective of what was actually the benefit or how did God move through those situations. Because many times the things that we look at that come into our life that seem like obstacles that we're supposed to overcome is actually the pathway that we need to walk through in order to get where God wants us to go. 
So today what I want to do is I want to take a look at something that, that the uh, Apostle John wrote. And if you, have been here, if you had been here through our Christmas series, you know that we had spent a lot of time looking at the writings of John. John was somebody who, who knew Jesus very well. He spent three years following Jesus around, listening to Jesus' teachings, seeing the miracles of Jesus. But not only that, after those three years, after Jesus' crucifixion, after he went up and was resurrected and went back to heaven, after that, Jesus looked at John and he said, John, I want you to be the one to take care of my mother. This is how deep that connection that Jesus had with John. And he looked at his mother and he said, Mother, I want you to take care of John. Take care of him like he's your son. John, take care of my mother like he's your mother. And John lived through what many people will describe as the toughest times in the history of the Jewish people. And he saw all of his friends or heard about all of his friends who had, who had spent time with Jesus too. He heard how they had all died. And John unusually lived to be an old man. And at the end of his life, he sat down and I think he must have said, you know, I've got all of this stuff and everywhere I go, people are asking me about Jesus. Before I'm not here anymore, I should write this down. I should write down all of these things so that it goes past me. So that it's not just the people who heard it from me, but people years and years from now can hear from my words, my experience with Jesus. And so he wrote this, this manuscript that today we call the book of John. Because they were not very clever when it came to writing titles for books. So if you wrote a book, that book would be your name. And this is the book of John. And so John is, is writing this book. And I think he gets to this place where he's, he's going through the history of Jesus and, and all of the things he went through. And he gets to this part in the story where he's now ready to talk about Jesus and his crucifixion. He's ready to talk about the end of Jesus' life. And he's trying to remember all of the things that Jesus said and and how Jesus kind of brought them through along this path that at the time they could not understand. But years later, he's looking at it and now it all makes sense. And so this is what John John wrote. And, And this is describing what he witnessed right before Jesus was going to be arrested and tried and crucified. And this is what he wrote. It starts in John and in chapter 16. Uh, And Jesus, this is Jesus talking. And Jesus knows everything that's about to happen. But none of his disciples know. And John doesn't know. And so this is where Jesus is warning them that things are not going to be as the way that they're supposed to be. Or that they think it's going to be. In fact, Jesus is telling them that things are about to go bad. And here's what he says. And this is Jesus talking. I have told you these things... So that you won't abandon your faith. Now that word abandon is the Greek word skandalethron. It's a long word, skandalethron. And skandalethron means the spring of a trap. You know the part of the trap that, that waits until you step on it or you walk through it and then it springs up and gets you? That's the word that he's using. In other words, what he's saying is, is that Jesus is telling us these things because we're going to walk along the the pathway of our life and out of nowhere, something is going to spring up that's going to cause us to question our faith. And so he says, I've told you these things so you won't be fooled. So you won't let this thing spring up on you. 
He says, For you will be expelled from the synagogues, and the time is coming when. Now, for this, this is an unusual thing. Like he didn't, They didn't understand what he was talking about here. Because why would they be expelled from the synagogues? Most of them were Jewish people. Most of them were welcome to be in the synagogues. Why? Well, it turns out that history tells us that's exactly what happened. See, when the followers of Jesus started to gain popularity, the rabbis in the synagogues introduced what they call the prayer of the curse of the Nazarenes which was a prayer that they prayed during the temple service to place a curse on anybody from Nazareth. Now, they didn't specifically say Jesus, but everyone knew that Jesus was from Nazareth. And so at every temple, they would pray this prayer together, the curse of the Nazarenes. And if you were a follower of Jesus, you wouldn't pray it. And so while they're praying it, they'd look around to see if there was anyone who wasn't saying the words. And if they didn't say the words, they knew that was a follower of Jesus. And so they would expel them from the synagogue. So Jesus is telling them something that they didn't know would be happening, but history bore out that this is exactly what happened. He says, and the time is coming when those who kill you will think they are doing a holy service for God. See, he's saying that those people who who are the ones who are trying to get rid of you, the ones who don't believe any of the things that you're teaching, the ones who don't believe in me, they think that what they're doing is actually serving God. And so they're going to think that what they're doing is a holy service, that it's the same thing as as offering communion to people or to playing music in church. It's the same kind of act. It goes on in verse 3 and it says, this is because they have never known the Father. They've never known the Father or me. Yes, I'm telling you these things now, so that when they happen, you will remember my warning. You see, what Jesus knew and what they didn't understand yet was that Jesus was not the Messiah that they were waiting for. You see, they were waiting for a Messiah that was going to save them from Rome. They were waiting for a Messiah that was going to save them from oppression. They were waiting for a Messiah who was going to save them from bondage. And instead, they got a Messiah that was going to save them from something even more oppressive. Something even more grinding on you. And that is your sin. But that's not what they expected. They were expecting a warrior king. And instead, they got the savior of the world. And so it says, he goes on and he says this. He says, I tell you the truth. You will weep and mourn over what is going to happen to me, but the world will rejoice. See, you're you're not going to get the gift that you want this Christmas. You're not going to get the gift that you're expecting to get this Christmas. That package that you saw that you know for sure that you know what was in it, it's not really what you think it's going to be. He's telling them, listen, life isn't going to turn out the way exactly that you want it to. But then he says, but the world. See, you have an expectation, but the world is going to rejoice. He goes on and he says, you will grieve, but your grief will suddenly turn to wonderful joy. Which seems odd. 
And I think at this moment, he was trying to, to, to figure out how is he going to express this so that people will understand. And then he thinks and he goes, wait a second, I understand it. And listen to what he writes next. He says, it will be like a woman suffering the pains of labor. I don't know what that's like. I mean, I've seen it and I've heard about it. But I don't know anything about the suffering, uh, what the pains of labor are like. I'm just guessing that it's pretty bad. Because went just looking at the physics of it, you know, the whole engineering of how that process happens, it must really be bad. And so John is saying, okay, because John's a guy, so he's never experienced this. And he says, um, it's going to be like a woman suffering the pains of labor. Now, he, he explains it in the next verse. He says, when her child is born, her anguish gives way to joy because she has brought a new baby into the world. And this I get. Again, I don't have any personal experience in it, but I've seen movies and I've seen television. You've seen this too. Ladies, maybe some of you have experienced this. But what I have seen is this. The woman is yelling, screaming, she's cursing at her husband. The baby comes out, and then all of a sudden, she's happy. Right? It's like, all of a sudden, all that stuff that you went through, it really didn't matter. You're just happy because here's your baby. Ten fingers, ten toes, everything is good. And that's what John is comparing it to. He's saying, listen, there's going to be pain. There's going to be anguish. You're going to be cursing people. But when the child is born... Her anguish gives way to joy because she has brought a new baby into the world. And then he brings it back to us and he says, So, you'll have sorrow now, but I will see you again. Now, put yourself in the context of this, right? Because when we read this, it's easy for us to think that what he's saying is, You have sorrow now. Guys, in this world right now, we have sorrow now, but I will see you again. And for us, I think it's easy for us to confuse this and to think that what he's talking about is at that time, at some unknown time in the future where we're told that Jesus is going to come again and he's going to take us all to heaven and we're all going to be happy. But that's not what John is talking about. When he quotes Jesus here, that's not what he's talking about. You see, this is a couple of days before Jesus is going to be crucified. This is a few days before Jesus is going to be put in the tomb. This is several days before Jesus is going to rise out of the tomb and come alive. And so when he says, so you have sorrow now, but I will see you again, he's not talking about something that's going to happen in the future for us. He's talking about something that has already happened for us. When he says, I will see you again, he is talking about his resurrection, his coming back, his not being defeated by death. So he says, I will see you again. And when I do, then all of the things that you understood and that that didn't make any sense before, they're all of a sudden going to make sense. All of the things that that I tried to tell you, but you couldn't comprehend it, it's all of a sudden going, going to make sense. Because you're going to come to this place where you are looking for a warrior king and that warrior king in front of you is going to die. And you will think that it's game over. But I'm going to see you again. And they didn't understand it. But a couple of days later, he was going to see them again. 
And then they would know that this is not the, this is the, not the warrior king that they expected, but this was the king of kings that they needed. And so he says, then you will rejoice and no one can rob you of that joy. You see, he was telling us that these things that you're experiencing, this sorrow now, these aren't bumps in the road. These aren't things that come up upon us and we're trying to work our way around. That they are part of the pathway to get us to be where God wants us to be. And then he says something that's going to completely change the game. In verse 23, he goes on and it says this. At that time, that time that you see me again, at that time, you won't need to ask me for anything. Because up until this time, anything that they needed, they asked Jesus. Right? They were there on the side of the hill and they needed to feed. They, they were looking at these people and they asked Jesus, how are we going to feed these people? Whenever they needed something, they asked Jesus. Whenever they were unsure of where to go, they would ask Jesus. But one thing that Jesus knew was that there was going to be coming a time where he wasn't going to be physically there in front of him. In front of them. To answer when they asked. To give them what they were looking for. To give them what they needed. And so he says, at that time, when I come back, when you see me again, at that time, you won't need to ask me for anything. Why? He says, I tell you the truth. You will ask the Father directly. You see, all up until this time, the, the entire history of the world, up until this time, what they understood was, was that you could not be in the presence of God directly. You could not go to God directly. That there was always a high priest. That you had to go through the high priest and only the high priest could talk to God. And so all of us could never talk directly to God. And this completely changes it. He says, I tell you the truth. All of those things that that you used to do in the temple, all of those sacrifices that you used to make, all of the things that told you that you could not be in the presence of God, that you could not talk to God directly, all of that is going to change. Because if you need anything, you will ask the Father directly. And listen to what he says. He says, and he will grant your request because you use my name. Not because you're using your name but because you're using my name. When I was growing up, I used to spend, uh, I spent many, many summers uh, with my family uh, who lived in Florida. And I had an aunt and an uncle, and they lived in a very, very tiny town uh, in north central Florida. And we used to go there for summers, uh, I think because, uh, actually, I don't know why, but we used to go there for summers all the time. And, and this tiny town was really, really tiny. I mean, the biggest news in this town was that they were getting their first stoplight. Uh, and then the second biggest news was that they were getting their second stoplight. So this was a small town. And in the middle of town, there was this um, a gas station that had a little convenience store on it. It was not a national brand. It was a local gas station and local store that was owned by somebody that lived in town. And one of the great things about this convenience store gas station was that my uncle had an account at that store. And so whenever we needed anything, gas, uh, a Slurpee, or I guess it wouldn't have been called a Slurpee, um, some kind of frozen drink, or a mellow yellow, um, uh, or uh, any kind of really soda. And back then they were still in bottles, so it was really cool. Um, but anytime you would go there and you want to put gas in your car, do anything, you could go right up, pump the gas, and then just say, put it on Dr. Martin's account. <laughs> 
And they would guess, and, and they would just go, okay, and wrote it down, and it would go onto my uncle's account, and at the end of the month, I assumed that he paid it. But any time anybody wanted to go up there, they would just go get whatever they wanted and just say, put it on his account, and they would put it on his account. It wasn't because I was special. It was because I was doing it in my uncle's name. In fact, we, everybody got so used to doing it in my uncle's name that he stopped that practice very, very quickly. And so we couldn't do it anymore in his name. But I understand this because I understand what it is to be able to do something in somebody else's name. See, I wasn't special. There was nothing about me. I mean, at the time, I was probably, that this was 15, 16 years old. There's no way that I, 15 or 16 year old, could have a credit account at this place. So it wasn't anything about me. It was because I was using my uncle's name. And when I used my uncle's name, it was as if he was standing there making the request. And John is saying that it's exactly the same with Jesus. That what Jesus was explaining to them is that, listen, you don't have to go through me anymore. That you can go to the Father directly. You can pray and ask God directly. And if you do it in my name, it's the same thing as if I am the one asking him. He says, listen, I know this is new. The next verse goes on and he says, you haven't done this before. This is going to be new for you. This isn't something that you've experienced yet. You can ask the Father, ask, and it's going to be the same as if I'm asking it. He goes on, he says, you haven't done this before. Ask using my name, and you will receive, and you will have abundant joy. Not abundant happiness, abundant joy. Because there's a difference between joy and happiness. See, happiness is an external thing. Happiness is something that comes from outside. You walk into work on Monday morning and your boss says, man, you are the best worker that I've ever had. We're starting off 2020 and I'm giving you a 100% raise. You are happy. You walk into work on Monday morning and your boss says, you know, we've been evaluating your production over the last year and we just are shocked that you have not done anything and so we're going to have to let you go. You are not happy. Happiness is an external thing. It comes from the things that are happening around us. But joy is different. It's internal. Joy comes from inside. And real joy, real lasting joy, is something that you can't run after. You can't go and, and follow a list of rules or, or go to a particular place or do certain things just to get joy. Joy is a byproduct of a relationship. Listen to what I'm saying. Joy in your life is the byproduct of a relationship. Whether that relationship is with your spouse, with your child, with your parent, with your siblings, with your friends. The joy that comes into our life is the result of a relationship. And the only true, real, lasting joy that comes into our lives, that foundation that we build only comes from our relationship with Jesus. And what he's saying is is that when you do this, when you understand that you can go directly to the Father, like we would with any perfect Father, and go directly to Him with the things that are on our heart, that you're going to ask, and you're going to receive, and it's going to bring you abundant joy. 
He goes on and, 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 and he says this. He says, I have told you all of this so that you may have peace in me. And then he says something that a lot of times that we can look at. And for some of us, we look at this and we say, no kidding. But for others of us, we look at this and we, I think we might even be a little bit sad. Because here's John quoting Jesus and Jesus says this. I, I, here on earth, you will have many trials and sorrows. Right? Who are the no duh people? Right? And who are the man? That's sad to me. Nobody. Well, one, two, okay. See, we look at this and we think to ourselves, okay, this is a, is this a prediction? Is this a command? No, this is simply a realization that when we are in this place that we're in, where sin has come in and so nothing is the way that it's supposed to be, that we are going to bump up against people and we're going to run into situations that we have no control over and we're going to look at them and they're going to be trials. And they might even bring us sorrows. And then he says this. He says, take heart. In other words, don't be afraid. Don't worry. Be confident in this. Take heart because I have overcome the world. This is how the Apostle Paul would sum it up. He would write to the church in Philippi and he would say this. He would say, I don't mean to say that I have already achieved these things or that I have already reached perfection. Because in this, Paul is talking to the, 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 the Christian church in Philippi. And what he's saying is, is that there are things that I wish that I could do that, I'm, that I can't do. There are things that I'm doing that I wish would come out differently. That, and, that, and that as I look back on all of my accomplishments, all of the things that I have done in my life, and he even starts to list them down. That he was one of the great scholars. That he was one of the respected people in the church. That he studied under one of the greatest teachers. One of the greatest rabbis in the history of the Jewish people. That he looks at all of those accomplishments and none of them compare to what he has experienced with Jesus. And so he says, but I press on to possess that perfection for which Christ Jesus first possessed me. No, dear brothers and sisters, I have not achieved it yet, but I focus on this one thing. And this is what he says. Forgetting the past and looking forward to what lies ahead. And I think if he was here today and saying, okay, what is it that we need to do as we prepare to go into 2020? He's, he would say, forget the past and look forward to what lies ahead. And that forget the past doesn't mean remove it from your memory. That forget the past doesn't mean pretend that it never happened. That forget the past means it's, it's, you don't have to pay attention to it anymore. You don't have to dwell on it anymore. You don't have to hold on to it anymore. That you can let it go. He says, and he closes it out and he says, I press on to reach the end of the race and receive the heavenly prize for which God through Christ Jesus is calling us. Thank you for joining us for this week's message. Grace Point Church is located in South San Francisco, California. For more information, 
Look us up online at www.wearegracepoint.com.